I encourage you to, to turn to our scripture this morning. We're gonna, it's going to be found in James chapter 2. And we're going to continue on the consideration of the Apostle Paul's writings about the testing of what I'm calling our living faith, one that grows and it matures, like we've been saying all day, every day, right where we live and where we work, where we study and where we play. A number of years ago, my wife Teresa and I went through a summer ritual that perhaps some of you are going through right now with some expectation, excitement, and perhaps a little bit of trepidation, we dropped our son Alex off at White Mountain Ranch. He was eight or nine years old at the time. And this was a Christian week-long summer camp. It's one that was a real highlight for him. In fact, he continued to go there for many years afterwards and eventually serving on staff for many summers. And one of the favorite activities that he had was something called the canteen. And the canteen was a place where Teresa and I would put some money into like a little bank account for him. And then he could go and he could shop for what he considered to be the essentials of summer camp. And of course, we would know that as soon as we dropped him off, the essential that he would pursue would be as much Canada Dry ginger ale as he could manage to carry. Because our son... Um, was, uh, it's okay to say this, a little hyperactive. Sugar tended to get him going. So in our family, we just had him drink one can of soda per week, usually on a Saturday afternoon when we could all recover later on that night. Well, this one particular year, we dropped Alex uh, off, and he had a great week, and we went back, and we picked him up, and we asked him how his week went. And he said, you know, he told us this story. It's a story that I'm, he's given me permission to share with you today. He said, as soon as you dropped me off, I went to the canteen and I spent all my money on this humongous case of Canada Dry Ginger Ale. Now remember, he was eight or nine years old. And he said he took this case and he threw it on his shoulder and he started lugging it back through the trail, winding through the woods to where his cabin was. And as he was going, he heard a noise. It was the voice of another boy, and it sounded like the boy was in distress. He was asking for help, and Alex looked, still carrying his ginger ale, and he saw a boy kind of his age stuck on a bobbed wire fence just off the pathway. I'm guessing the boy was taking a shortcut to get to the canteen to get his booty for the week as well. So I said, well, Alex, what did you do? And he said, Dad, I told him he was going to have to wait. I had to get my ginger ale back to the cabin. And so he did. He left the boy hanging on the fence. He secured his cargo. And then to his credit, even at eight or nine, he went back to where the boy hanging on the fence was. And by now the boy was gone. Perhaps somebody had come along and pulled him off, or maybe he just wiggled his way out of there. I'm not sure. Well... We knew Alex's heart. From a young age, Alex has professed faith in Christ, and it's been a genuine faith. But as Christian parents, we were concerned because we said, Alex, we recognize, like you probably do, that belief and faith and values without action is scandalous. We had to take our son at eight and nine and remind him of the story of the Good Samaritan, where it wasn't going to be acceptable just to wish that boy well while you then left him hanging in that desperate strait. There's a connection between faith and action. 
And in this morning's reading in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, I mean, the Apostle James is going to remind us and he's going to teach us this very important point that we are to live a life that reveals saving faith in Christ through actions of obedience to God as well as actions of compassion towards others that are in need. So this morning, I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bibles open. I think it's in page 10, 12 in the Pew Bibles, because we're going to work our way through what James has to say. Before we do that, I'm going to ask if you'll just bow your heads. And would you repeat after me while I pray this simple prayer? Repeat, Father, speak to my heart and change my life. So let's turn right to chapter 2 in James. And beginning in verse 14, James starts challenging us immediately with a question. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? What good is it? Or maybe what profit can it bring? Or maybe another way of thinking of it is what gain is there to be had? You see, in the ancient world, a writer like James would have introduced this dialogue presenting an argument with which he actually disagreed. He's asking whether or not faith without works is any good at all. And who's he asking this loaded question to? Look back into verse 14. He's he's addressing it to my brothers, the church, those that are within his shepherd care. And why is he asking this question? Because it seems that for some in the church, this was a question that they had been wrestling with. In fact, it seems as though there were some in the church that were claiming that you could have faith without any works and that it was true and it was possible. And so I wonder amongst us here today, have you ever heard someone else wonder and think out loud about the proper relationship between faith and works? And perhaps it's even you. You wonder that question and you think about it. You wrestle with it. See, we know that James's writings, the ones that we're studying this morning, were amongst the earliest writings of the New Testament. It probably written around 50 AD or even earlier. So from the very beginning of the early church, this was a question that they wrestled with. And even today, there's some of us who are sitting here. We've come from faith traditions that puts great emphasis on what we do as activities that are attempting to ingratiate ourselves with God, to sort of earn his pleasure, while some of us sitting here today come from faith traditions that put great emphasis on the mercy of God, almost to the point of releasing ourselves from any expected change in behavior or actions. Now, when we look back at church history, historically, Luther and the great reformers, they looked to the writings of the Apostle Paul, and they cried a a term that might be familiar to you, sola fide, faith alone. And that was a necessary hallmark of the Reformation. In Romans chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes this, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law or the works of the law. And then later, when he's writing to the Galatians in 2.16, he says, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law or the works of the law, but in faith in Jesus Christ. And so it certainly seems that Paul is convinced that the works that are associated with following the law have no place in the salvation of any person. And yet, 
We'll see later this morning in verse 24 from James. He asserts that a person is justified by works. He says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Well, how can that be? Aren't these two positions fundamentally in conflict? And, and, and if they are, shouldn't that cause us to question the authenticity and the believability of the Scriptures? See, when two writers appear to be in direct conflict with each other, who's right? Is it faith instead of works? Or is it works instead of faith? Or is it somehow rather faith and works combined? What should we think? This morning, I think that it would be helpful to us if we would recognize that Paul and James offer us some ideas that are different by design. Because really, Paul and James are trying to teach us different aspects of justification. That is, the questions that they're attempting to answer and the issues that they're trying to address, they are not the same questions and they're not the same issues. In Paul's writing, he was attempting to teach us about our right standing before God. What does it mean to be justified before God? And how is one justified by God? Well, by faith, Paul would say, by placing your trust in the sufficiency of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross as a substitute for the penalty of death that you and I, in fact, all of us, rightly deserve. From this platform a couple of weeks ago, Joel Smith uh, kind of reviewed for us this concept of justification. He reminded us that once justified or declared right with God, we begin to live a life of sanctification, being increasingly changed, increasingly transformed, that finally leads to glorification, where we're made fully mature and we're most like Christ in eternity with God. See, the scriptures teach that justification leads to sanctification, which leads to glorification. This is what the Apostle Paul meant by faith. He teaches us that it's an eternal position, and it's based upon what? Believing in Christ. Now, earlier in, our, in the readings that we had from James several weeks ago, he also made it clear that we're to embrace a complete trust in Christ, one that not only depends on the saving power of Jesus, but listen, it also submits to the authority of Jesus as Lord in every aspect of our life. And James' epistle, the reading that we have today, he too is concerned about justification, being declared right. But the aspect of justification that he's concerned about and is teaching about is this. What does justification look like before men? And he holds that the means by which men perceive the grace of God in the lives of Christians is through works that reveal saving faith. Now, for the Apostle Paul, most of the time when he used the term works, he was talking about the works of the law, those activities of religious activity and behavior that were done in obedience to what we call the Torah, the law, the Old Testament law, and that that was a necessary response to God's election of Israel. 
I think it would be wise for us to think of it as sort of a religiously technical term. In contrast, James, in this chapter and in his writings, he uses the term works, but it's of a more general manner. It refers to actions or deeds that are done in obedience to God, but most often they're done in mercy and in compassion to other people, to someone else. And so for James, justification is a daily proof of being right with God. It's not just believing in Christ, but it's also behaving like Christ. So if someone, James might say, says he has faith, but he does not have works, can that faith save him? By the very way that James asks the question, he implies the answer is definitely, most definitely no. For faith without works is like a tree that bears no fruit. Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel reminded us of this spiritual principle. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Let's go back and look at verse 15 for a second. Because here James, he kind of gives us an important illustration. And he's trying to answer the question, what good is it? Verse 15 says, If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of, them, one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. Now, if you remember last week, some of you, Tanner taught from the beginning of this chapter. It's kind of a part one to what I'm coming to today. And we were reminded that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're to love our neighbors how? By destroying partiality and by elevating the glory of Christ. You see, in our acceptance of other people, we are not to focus on the differences that exist between us. In James's example, he spoke about a rich man and a poor man and the differences that we respond because our natural temptation is to move towards the person that seems important or rich in some way, shape, or form. And at the same time, our tendency, our natural tendency, is to ignore the person that doesn't have or doesn't appear to be as valuable and Tanner reminded us that the bride of Christ, the church, that's who we are, that we should be untainted by the partiality in the recognition of those differences. And yet James this morning tells us that we are to notice the differences in this manner. As Christians, we are to recognize the desperate need, the reality of need, and then move in response to that need in mercy and compassion. Because James, in this verse, he identifies those amongst us who are poorly clothed, and maybe they only have undergarments or maybe sort of a threadbare uh, clothes. Whatever they're wearing, it's useless, absolutely useless, against the cold or elements that come across to the body. And he uses the term lacking, and it sort of indicates that it's an ongoing need. This is not just a simple one-time view, but this is a consistent pattern of needing and wanting. And what else do they lack? Look in, the, look in the text. They lack daily food. For they are habitually underfed. They're constantly falling short of the daily supply of food that's required for life and it's required for health. 
And this situation reminded me as I was thinking about it of Jesus' instructions on how all of us are to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Yeah, see, you remember that too. And James reminds us that often God's way of fulfilling that prayer request by somebody is through his people as they share with those who are in need. See, if we fail to participate in God's way for providing for those who are in desperate conditions, then we should see that as a scandal. And it really does require immediate corrective action. Because, and here's why, listen carefully, it brings judgment upon the condition of our hearts. And sometimes it calls into question whether or not we're really in sync with the Father's heartbeat. The Apostle John said it like this. If anyone has material possessions and he sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. Let us not love with words or tongue. We should read carefully and then we should be alarmed as we start to understand the callousness of the response of the people that James was writing about in his community of faith. For James repeats a phrase that I'm guessing he had heard himself. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. While there's nothing wrong with the words that that person is sharing, you and I both know that they fall woefully short. Piety, pious words, without giving any concrete ad, it just allows this greeting to be a religious cover for inaction. I like what Spurgeon had to say. He said, if you want to give a hungry man a track, wrap it up in a sandwich. Think about that. To see a desperate need and to do nothing but express good wishes is useless. And that kind of faith, the Apostle James says, it's just as useless too. In fact, James says here in this scripture that it's dead. It's a useless faith. It's a dead faith. Perhaps, and here's the scary part, Perhaps it was a faith that never actually had any life at all. And these are harsh words for those that are in the community of faith. Now, these words by James probably offended some people. It's likely this morning as I share this with you, it's likely that you may be offended a little bit. I know as I read it, I've offended myself. It's possible that even now you're formulating some objections to what we're sharing from the Scripture. Well, James's audience was the same. And as people heard in the first century, he then proceeded to answer their objections, to anticipate what they might say. And he spends the rest of this passage giving further clarity to the exhortation. First, James introduces a sort of an imaginary adversary in the Scripture, one who he's going to carry on a conversation with. And if you look at uh, the next verse... He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works 
And James says, I will show you my faith by my works. See, in this example, this imaginary opponent of James is arguing that there's no relationship between faith and works. They operate in completely different spheres of influence. And James challenges this notion. He insists that there has to be some demonstrative evidence of faith to all. I like how the New Living Translation says it. I can't see your faith if you don't have any good deeds. James insists that for the true follower of Christ, not only will faith be revealed by actions, but actions can serve as a, as a type of proof of faith that is claimed. And he, James, is willing and prepared to submit himself to that test, and we should be as well. So let me ask you this question. How about you? To begin with, have you experienced the type of saving faith in Christ that the Apostle Paul uh, taught us about in Romans and Galatians? A trust in Jesus that acknowledges the sinful condition of your heart, that recognizes the correctness of judgment, that cries out to God in mercy and finds it in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross a punishment accepted by him in place of you and in place of me. And my question would be, if not, why not? And if not yet, why not today? You see, James, the author of this epistle, the half-brother of Jesus, certainly discovered this spiritual truth. He was a devout and a religious Jew. He had discovered the freedom of saving faith. And as a result of being declared right with God, he discovered an increasing flow of obedience to God and mercy towards others as his heart was increasingly changed to be more like Christ. So I ask you again, how about you? If you claim to have saving Christ, faith in Christ, can anyone tell? If you were accused of being a Christian in a hostile court of law, would there be any evidence presented to convict you based on works of obedience and actions of mercy? If not... Why not? If not yet, why not today? If you have difficulty seeing deeds of compassion to those in your life, that, that movement towards it, then maybe you've never really understood the gospel and its true power to, to save and to transform, to give us a new heart and a new perspective, a heartbeat that's in sync with the heartbeat of God in mercy and compassion to others. And so today I encourage you to consider the saving faith that Paul and James teach us about. Maybe you're someone who has confessed Jesus as Savior, but you've been ignorant about the call to compassion. Maybe you just haven't been paying attention then today might mark your opportunity to gain in knowledge, but not just knowledge, but to gain in action as well. Or maybe, probably for most of us, myself included, 
Maybe we've just been a little too complacent. Maybe just a little bit too self-centered. A little too callous. And maybe today marks a day of turning that around. Seeking forgiveness and beginning to see God's mercy flow out to other people through us. While you're thinking about your situations and sorting through maybe where you are, I encourage you to pay attention to what James continues to teach us. In verse 19, he gives us the first of three examples to help us to understand better. This first one's an ironic example, I think. Beginning in verse uh, 19, it says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Demons, James states, certainly have an intellectual and even a verbal profession. Uh, However, it's a limited profession because it never goes beyond the verbal. It never touches the heart and produces life. It's disconnected. And recognizing still the true nature of God, James says even demons shudder. And they shudder, and this reaction seems appropriate because I'm assuming they experience dread because in their knowledge they know one day they will face judgment. And when they face judgment, they know the power behind the judge. It's been said, it's a good thing to possess an accurate theology. But it is unsatisfactory unless good theology also possesses us. James implies that those who give just a verbal profession that is not followed up with actions should likewise shudder. And he concludes that his opponent is like that. In fact, He calls him the very definition of a foolish person. If you were to get past the Greek and look at it, he calls him an empty person. There's nothing of substance behind it. And so if James' opponent and demons are not good examples of the relationship between faith and works, then are there any positive examples that we can learn from? Let's look at the next verse, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The credentials of Abraham were beyond dispute. They couldn't be denied. He was rightly recognized as a spiritual giant, the patriarch of Israel, as well as a friend of God on both ends of the spectrum. And in this example, James kind of gives us three insights into how faith and works are inseparable. First, they work together as part of one reality. If we could kind of tear apart at the original language, a better translation might be Faith was working with works. Faith is said to be made complete, perfected by what Abraham did. This is a picture of growth and maturity. And as a Christian is increasingly transformed into the image of Christ, faith in Christ and obedience to do what he desires us to do in the first place provides strong motivation for doing the works and following through in obedience And then once saving faith is placed on the promises of God, 
the reality, that reality of placing faith in God is proved to be real as deeds of obedience point back to that transformational moment. You see, faith and actions operate together in the life of a Christian in a dynamic way. Faith is not a static condition. It's not, it doesn't stand stiff like at attention. If you've ever seen the guards at the Tower of London, they just stand there and people are waving and trying to get them to flinch. That's not faith. Faith is on the move. It's active. It seeks actions of obedience and it seeks actions of mercy. Let's look at verse 25 because there's another positive example that James gives us. He says, and in the same way, I like that, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I love, love, love this example. I'm so glad that James was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to put it into this scripture so that we can look at it. Because while Abraham was a spiritual giant in the history of Israel, Rahab was the exact opposite. She was an unexpected hero of the faith. She was a prostitute, and all things considered, a relatively minor character in the writings of the Old Testament. Now, we don't have the time this morning to go through the full story, but this is what you should know. She was a pagan by birth and practice. She had heard about the God of Israel. She recognized him as the true God, the one that was worth risking your life for, and she did risk her life for for him. When Israel finally entered the promised land of Cana after wandering the desert for 40 long years, Joshua sent spies in to scout the fortified city of Jericho. And Rahab was an innkeeper prostitute there who maintained a home in the wall of this great city. And in obedience, she hid these spies on a rooftop. And through her belief and her trust in God, she actively participated Get this, she actively participated in the safety and the rescue of the spies in the face of overwhelming odds and overwhelming danger. Rahab had to carry out her heartfelt faith in the one true God by actions of obedience. And while she may have been tempted to assist those spies' desperate need with a pious I'll pray for you, brothers, that you don't get caught. That would have been comparable to what James is pointing towards as pious and useless words. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. Rahab's example is an example, I think, for all of us. We should demonstrate um, the universality of this principle because it's applicable to all It's a principle that's not just reserved for spiritual giants like Abraham, but it's available to me and it's available to you. We are to live a life that reveals saving faith in Christ through actions of obedience to God as well as actions of compassion towards others that are in need. And listen, to fail to do that, James insists, is to demonstrate that our faith is dead. 
you should know that this section of James is considered to be one of the trickiest passages to kind of navigate your way through in the New Testament. I appreciate you guys hanging in. I can tell that you've been active listeners, and that makes it a lot easier to do. I want to take a moment, and I want to do a little theology and practice. You see, anytime we read the Word as in individuals or in small groups or even as a community of faith, it's wise to ask ourselves the question, so what? How does this apply to some reality in our life? If we've learned these truths about faith and works, does it have any relevance to us as an individual or to as a church? And so I want to take just a few minutes and think about as Redemption Hill Church and apply this to us as a gathered community of faith. And I want to think about how is it that we'll respond as we grow to the influx of more and more need in our midst. Now, before I do that, I want to remind you, it doesn't mean that we don't care about needs outside the church. If you were to look at our uh, member covenant, uh, you'd read that we, we commit ourselves to praying for the city of Medford and greater Boston and the world, and we seek their good by engaging in what? In deeds of mercy and kindness. But for the sake of time this morning, I want to focus on what the elders have organized conceptually. I'll call it benevolence. How do we as a community of faith, how do we extend obedience and mercy to those that have need right here within the church body? Well, the goal or or sort of the trajectory of where we're going as a body should always be towards what we're going to call full restoration for any individual or family that we assist. You see, sometimes we're going to have to come along as a community of faith and provide relief. There's going to be an immediate, urgent, desperate need that's overwhelming, and there's suffering that's going to be in our face, and, and, and we need to respond to it quickly and forcefully. Um, benevolence, in this case, might mean providing some food for a family when a job has been unexpectedly lost. Sometimes, as a church, we're going to come alongside and we're going to do what I'll call rehabilitation. In other words, we're going to take and we're going to try to strengthen some strengths that an individual or family has while they actively participate in their own recovery. And benevolence in this case might be offering some job counseling to to that person that lost their job as we help them move forward in seeking the next job. And then finally, the goal is always restoration. And what do I mean by restoration? It's doing what we can do that will promote change in the heart and in the relationships and the life circumstances that it, in that individual. And in the process of doing benevolence, it's not just the ones that we help that get changed. We get changed as well. Restoration is a restoration of all of us within the community of faith. And so in this instance, restoration may be walking alongside somebody as they search and seek what is their God-given shape, what is their vocational call in life, so that not only do we meet the immediate tangible need, but we place them in their spot in the kingdom. And so their gifts, their talents, their shape is released, and not only are they blessed and benefited, but the whole community is benefited as well. And so those are the goals of benevolence as a church. And how will we do those? How will we actually act on those? Well, I think based on this morning's reading, you probably have an idea of where I'm going. As elders, we affirm that all believers, all believers, all believers 
have a primary responsibility to love our neighbors in both word and in deed. From the commands of the Old Testament right up to the teaching that we've gotten this morning from James, it's clear that when we respond to Christ and his work by caring for the needs of others who, listen, live amongst us, see, your personal encounters, your places of work, my places of work, my personal encounters are going to be manifold. And when we put compassionate responses as the frontline opportunities of Redemption Hill Church to meet those needs, their needs are met and God is glorified. So, Anthony, when you're working, you provide benevolence in the people that you move amongst. And Tanner, when you're moving around the community of Medford, you're providing benevolence to the people that you see. And as you're doing it, you're doing it on behalf of Redemption Hill Church because we share that vision of a people that's redeemed moving out and being a blessing to those who are in desperate need. And if you guys commit to that, I commit to that, and I hope we all commit to that. Secondly, as elders, we affirm that living life together through community groups and through small group gatherings is another way that we maintain commitments to each other. See, as we live in biblical community, we expect that needs will be discovered and they'll be appropriately acted upon. Our prayer is that in your community groups that you guys are transparent with each other, that you grow in trust. Trust isn't given automatically. It has to be earned over time. And how do you do that? You have to do that by spending time together. But as trust is grown and transparency increases then the opportunities to love on one another within that family context explodes. And it's one of the reasons why we consistently exhort you, investigate community groups, be involved in community groups. It's a vital part of who we are. It's the second-line defense. It's the shock absorbers, so to speak, of meeting needs within each other's lives. And then thirdly, as elders, we affirm that sometimes there's going to be an identified need a desperate need that's going to exceed your capacity as an individual or maybe even exceed your capacity as a, as a community group. And, and when those occurrences happen, we've established a process here at Redemption Hill Church where we want to know about that so that we can rally as a church to address that need. And so we have a benevolence team that acts on behalf of the congregation at large. And, and when a need becomes known, they're mobilized on behalf of all of us to go and to meet that need. And how does that work? Well, you have to communicate the need. So perhaps a community group leader will come to us and say, listen, the need has exceeded our capacity as a community group. We could use some more resources. Or you might just come and speak to a pastor or another ministry leader. Or um, I think that we have connect cards. If you notice on the back of one of the connect cards, there's a little place where you can check off discreetly, notice discreetly, share a material or a financial need. If you're aware of that or aware of that for someone else, you can check that off and put that into the offering basket so that our benevolence team can be alerted and take action. We cannot take action to which we don't know about. That team's going to get together and they're going to confidentially assess the circumstance and then they're going to come up with a plan that they'll share with you and they'll talk to you about it. And sometimes that plan will involve some financial assistance. Not always. Sometimes benevolence is, is other issues. 
But when they do, as a, even as a young church plant, we do have in our budget, we have a line item for benevolence because we believe in it. And we certainly have plenty of other places we could spend that money today, but we're committed to making sure that needs are not unmet. Sometimes some of you will receive so much blessing in your life that you'll come and you'll say, I'd like to give a gratitude gift. Kind of like the 10 lepers that were healed, but one came back to say thanks to Jesus. And so you'll come and you'll share perhaps with a ministry leader and say, you know what? I don't know someone right now in need, but this needs to go as a, grat- a sign of gratitude to somebody else. Help release that to that person. Sometime in the future, there may be a need that's so great that we may just as elders put out a special appeal and say, listen, our tithes and offerings are wonderful, but there's a chance to be a blessing in a real concrete way. Let's rally together and do that as a community of faith. You see, as elders, there's a progression that we believe is biblically valid and it's experiential workable. Each of us, those of us that have saving faith, we're called to reveal our changed hearts and acts of compassion within our relational networks. But then we can come together every week in small community groups and begin to care for each other as awareness and resources are shared. And then when that Uh, isn't quite sufficient as the gathered body of Christ here in Greater Medford, Redemption Hill Church, there's going to be times when we do that together in a very visible manner. Let us never be a place that ever can be accused of saying, go in peace, be warmed, be filled. As the worship team rejoins me on the platform, I'd like us to be reminded that in James 1.22, we read this earlier this month, James warned against merely listening to the word of God and then not doing it. He made it clear that we're to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. James, in this morning's passage, he applies that truth to the concrete situation of a living faith, not a dead faith, The faith by which one claims to be saved is a living faith that produces, it produces, it produces action. And so acts and works and deeds of love serve as an evidence for others to see saving faith. Abraham offering of Isaac, which he did in Genesis 22, that's an example of of the faith by which he was declared righteous in Genesis 15. He was called to a specific action. And when he obeyed, Abraham showed evidence of his faith. James says his faith was made complete by what he did. You see, the life of faith is more than a private transaction of the heart with God. It is the life of active consecration in the obedience that, listen, which holds nothing back from God and the concern which holds nothing back from human need. Let's just bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, I bow my head before you with my brothers and sisters, and and, um, James has given us a lot to think about this morning. I know that even as I went through and I prepared to share this word and and teach it faithfully, my heart was convicted of so many opportunities that where I think I just failed and I blew it. And for that, Father, I ask your forgiveness 
And I would ask the Lord that you not allow me or allow anyone else to leave here today without a sense of purpose um, around meeting the needs of other people as, as you would call us to do. Father, I also am, 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 am very aware that at times when there's a, a word that's convicting, um, we can sometimes walk away with false guilt as well. And so I would pray that as we sort through the emotions and the thoughts that your spirit have given us, I pray that your spirit would make plain that which we're responsible for and would dismiss and deflect those pieces of guilt that are not legitimate. I pray these things, Father, trusting and believing that the work you've begun in our lives is a work that you will be faithful to complete. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.